Tomorrow, of course, is not just Halloween. It is, of course, Reformation Day, 500 plus years since the world-changing events of the Protestant Reformation, uh, usually tied to October 31st, the day when Martin Luther, as it is said, nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, and the world has never been the same. You and I are here today as Protestants, believers in the Holy Little C Catholic Church, because of, in no small part, the courage of that German monk. Martin Luther, of course, believed in the scriptures. He believed that in the Bible, God had spoken, that the Bible could be trusted, that God's word was infallible, that everything that we believe and every action that we endorse always needs to be run through the truth of the word of God. The world, of course, as we said, has been forever changed by the Protestant Reformation, and the world has been forever changed by the belief that the word of God is true. We turn our attention this morning to Ezekiel chapters 12 through 14. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, reminding him that he dwelled in the midst of a rebellious house. This was the insight that Ezekiel was given about his fellow exiles back in chapter 2 when he received his commission. God was sending him, he said in Ezekiel 2, verse 3, to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against their God. I want to talk to you this morning about rebellion against God. Keep in mind that this rebellious house was not the Gentile pagan nations. This rebellious house was the chosen nation. How is it that anyone, and especially God's own people, can rebel against him? In short, we rebel against God when we lose confidence in his word. When the word of God becomes irrelevant to us, or when it is misunderstood by us, or when it is insufficient for us. We rebel against God when God's word becomes, first, irrelevant to us, second, when it is misunderstood by us, and third, when it is insufficient for us. Are you a rebel? Well, in chapter 12, we see that Israel's rebellion against God was fueled first by the irrelevance with which they viewed God's word. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. So this is, we're, we're not talking about, of course, necessarily in their day, some written text, although the word of the Lord would have included the Torah. But the Bible is being written as the events of Israel's history are unfolding. 
And we see in this 12th chapter that Israel's rebellion against God was fueled by the fact that the word of the Lord was held with irrelevance, irrelevant to their lives. God describes Israel as a rebellious house because, as you're looking here in chapter 12, they had eyes to see but did not see, because they had ears to hear but did not hear. In other words, their rebellion against God is not described in terms of brash idolatry as if the people had decided to explicitly worship some other God rather than Yahweh. Their problem was different. On the one hand, their rebellion is owing to a certain spiritual blindness or spiritual deafness. They rebel because they don't see. They rebel because they don't hear. If they could see, or if they did see, and if they did hear, there wouldn't be a rebellion. On the other hand, this rebellion is not like, or this blindness and deafness could be excused as something that was entirely out of their control. They had eyes for seeing. They had ears for hearing. The reason they did not see and did not hear is not because they could not, but because they would not. You know, it's kind of like staying willfully ignorant of something in hopes that you won't be accountable for it. You don't do something like that. But they did. God calls this rebellion not ignorance. Rebellion against God. So God tells Ezekiel here in chapter 12 to perform yet again another sign act. We've talked about these already in our introduction to the book. We've seen Ezekiel already do some of these sign acts. So in verse 3, God tells him to prepare yourself and exile's baggage and go into exile by day in their sight. Now this last phrase, in their sight, is repeated five more times through verse 6. If you read through the first six verses, you can't help but notice it. Obviously, God wants to get their attention. He hopes, in verse 3, that this sign act will bring them to understanding. So we ask, what was it God wanted them to understand? We find out a bit later, because in verse 9, we are told that the exiles came to Ezekiel asking him what we're asking, Ezekiel. What are you doing? God tells him to then explain, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. And in verse 11, Ezekiel is to explain that what he has enacted is what will happen to them. So in other words, what you're reading here is maybe not that interesting to you, but it would have been to the original uh, hearers because this is a prophecy about the coming siege of Jerusalem. The prince is the last of the kings of Israel, Zedekiah. But he's not really even considered here a king. Notice he calls him a prince, not a king. That's because he was Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king. And Zedekiah himself rebelled against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You can read all about it in 2 Kings 25 and go back later and compare what happened there with what Ezekiel had predicted would happen some five years earlier here in verses 12 to 13. It seems that the exiles that are already in Babylon were holding on to hope 
that Zedekiah would prevail in his rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar? Well, of course they would hope so. These were their fellow countrymen. I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to do, is hope that back home, the rebellion against the king who took you in exile would prevail? I mean, that makes sense. But of course, this is no ordinary country. Remember, we're talking about Israel here and the fact that God had made a particular covenant with this nation of people. The rebellion that's described here is not because the people had rejected God and his covenant outright, but because they wanted, expected, yes, even demanded that God would renege on his terms. See, they expected and demanded that God, since they were his people, would defend their land, the capital city and the monarchy, and especially his own temple, no matter what. Even Ezekiel's audience, already exiled to Babylon, demanded God come to their aid. But notice, God calls that demand rebellion. Because his word was that the city must fall and that the temple must come down. Those stubborn Israelites. But wait just a minute. Ask yourself again, what did God want these exiles to do? What what would it look like for them to not rebel? Were they to hope for Jerusalem to fall to Babylon after all? Were they to cheer God on as he sent the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem into exile? Were they to betray their countrymen and express loyalty to pagan, idolatrous Babylon? Is that what God wanted them to do? No. The way of God is never the choice between two different idolatrous ways or the demand that we must pick the lesser of two evils. God's purpose in this sign act, as well as in the brief one that follows in verses 17 to 20, is made explicit by the thrice-repeated recognition formula in verses 15, 16, and 20. What God wanted Ezekiel's fellow exiles to do was to know their God so that they would return to him and turn away from their rebellion. To know God, they would need to see that he was not on Babylon's side against Jerusalem, but he was also not on Israel's side against Babylon. See, surprisingly... God's action, God's declared word here, was his act of extreme loyalty to his own word, to his covenant, precisely by sending Israel into exile. And what God wanted these exiles to do was to avoid the poisonous and bitter root that God warned them of in Deuteronomy 29. Here's what it says. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now, what all of us Christians must be aware of is the all-too-common temptation to think, I shall be safe after all. I am a Christian. While paying no attention 
to my own stubborn ways as a so-called follower of Jesus. It's not enough to profess faith in Jesus, but to not follow after the Christ we say we believe in. Sadly, many who profess faith in Christ today do so with little thought about how faith in Christ applies to every area of their lives. So long as they avoid, you know, the obvious sins and show sufficient religious commitment, they are good to go. But they believe God's word is irrelevant for the complexities of our modern, modern world. So they, I'm saying they because not, it's not you. you. You don't do this. So they, you know, those Christians, they, they don't. That either. They don't give much thought to what God says about new technologies. Just swallow them, use them. Technology's good. Just use them all. They don't put much thought into modern conveniences. God may have something to say about life after death, they think, but many live as though he has nothing to say to us about the complexities and the challenges of 21st century life. Now look down at our scripture text this morning. As God asks Ezekiel in verse 22, what is this proverb that we have? You know, the one that says, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. Or the one mentioned later in verse 27, the vision that he sees is for many days from now and he prophesies of times far off. As in Ezekiel's time, so in ours. Rebellion against God is fueled by seeing God's word as irrelevant to our current day. Yes, of course, the Bible is an old book, telling us of events from long ago. But here we find the warning that God's word is always relevant in every generation. And when we stop believing that, implicitly, or explicitly, we become rebels of God, blind and deaf to what it is he is going to do. So God reminds us all in verse 25, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. God's word, to quote the prophet Isaiah, will not return to him empty. But it shall accomplish that for which I that which I purpose, God says, it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, let us be quick to add here that there is another way that we can end up being rebels against God and His Word. And it's almost the opposite problem of viewing God's Word as irrelevant. We can end up rebelling against God when we misunderstand it. We might believe that the word of God is relevant, but we get it all wrong. Look with me, if you will, at Ezekiel chapter 13. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Ezekiel 13 consists mainly of God's denouncing the prophets of Israel, both the male 
prophets, verses 1 through 16, as well as the female prophets in verses 17 to 23. Now, let's remind ourselves. What, is, what was a prophet in the days of Israel? A prophet was someone who claimed to speak for God, to announce what God has to say. Back in chapter 2, Ezekiel received his commission to be a prophet. And we said back then that his work involved pointing out treason against God and his kingdom and urging traitors to repent, all while representing the steadfast, loving presence of God. But the prophets of Israel are here denounced, you'll notice in verse 4, because they have been like jackals among ruins. Rather than seeking to build up God's people and God's kingdom, they are like these nocturnal scavengers who live off the devastation of Israel's rebellion. Down in verses 10 to 15, God speaks of these prophets as those who have smeared the wall with whitewash. And the image here is of someone covering up imperfections in a construction with a thin plastering that makes the building look good, but does nothing to actually fix the problem. Maybe like those homes that are being flipped in your neighborhood. So God warns these prophets in verse 14 that when he comes and breaks down the wall, these prophets will perish with it. But they will also in that day know that he is the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So God's complaint against these prophets is that, as verse 10 says, they have, look at it, they have misled my people. They have led the people into error by, verse 19 says, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live. A complete perversion of justice. They have led the nation into rebellion by getting completely wrong the will and ways of God. Take a look again at verse 10. God says these prophets have misled his people by saying, peace when there is no peace. Now, here's a warning for God's people today. You can sincerely rebel against God. <laughs> you can sincerely rebel against God. You can be dead wrong and think you are walking right in step with God when you are actually going in the exact opposite direction. You can be convinced that you are God's ally when you are actually proving to be God's enemy. You can think every day you are working to build up the kingdom of God when you are, in fact, tearing it down. And God will not put up with this rebellion. Now, it's easy to see this in others. <laughs> but surely the weight of this warning should fall first on us and give us a moment's pause and time to ask, like Jesus' disciples upon hearing that one of them would soon betray him, is it I, Lord? A moment of humility would do us good. We who are so quick to judge others, Paul remind, asks us in Romans chapter 2, must we not intently judge ourselves? If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. Will you not first examine your own heart? This morning I finished reading 
Frederick Douglass's uh, narrative on his life. And at the very end of the book, he added an appendix. Just read it this morning. He wrote this appendix, he says, to clarify that after he went back and reread his, his narrative of his life, that he wanted to make sure the reader understood he was no opponent of the Christian faith. But he believed that, quote, the Christianity of America is a Christianity of whose votaries it may be as truly said as it was of the ancient scribes and Pharisees. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, end quote. He had written that the religion of the South was, quote, a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under with the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection. Douglas wrote, were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery next to that enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could befall me. For all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst, end quote. Why was this? Was it because these professed Christians were not sincere in their faith? Douglas wrote of one slave owner, a minister in the local church, that the slaves who could choose where they would live would choose anyone other than the right reverend. He writes, quote, and yet there was not a man anywhere around who made higher professions of religion or was more active in revivals, more attentive to the class, love feast, prayer and preaching meetings, or more devotional in his family that prayed earlier, later, louder, and longer than this same reverend slave driver, and he names him, Rigby Hopkins, end quote. Again, Douglas said of one of his own masters, quote, I have seen him tie up a lame young woman and whip her with a heavy cowskin upon her naked shoulders, causing the warm red blood to drop. And in justification of the bloody deed, he would quote this passage of scripture, he that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes, end quote. I know, I know. That's the distant past. And we Christians have gotten past all that barbarity. But how frightful to hear many today say that they would rather be employed by anyone else other than a Christian. They'd rather work for anyone other than a Christian company. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. And neither should it be true, but it is that no group has shifted their position on whether elected officials can be trusted to behave ethically in public if they've committed immoral acts in their, private, in their personal lives than white evangelical Protestants. Only 30% affirmed that in 2011, while 72% affirmed it just five years later 
three weeks before the 2016 national elections. And we know that many of these did so because they found justification for doing it from their Bibles. These prophets that God is denouncing in chapter 13 were not flagrant worshipers of other gods. They believed they were accurately speaking on God's behalf. But God says in verse 3 that they were following their own spirit rather than getting their message from what God had said. But make no mistake, if the devil can twist scripture for his own fiendish purposes, so can you and I. Peter reminds us, that the ignorant and unstable are quite good at twisting the scriptures to their own destructions. So what shall we do? Let us pose an answer to that question by considering one last way that we can rebel against God. Not only when we believe and begin to believe that the Bible is irrelevant to us, not only when it is misunderstood by us, but also when the Bible becomes insufficient for us. In chapter 14, some of the elders of Israel have come to Ezekiel to inquire of God. This act shows that they do not believe God's word is irrelevant. Why would they come to the prophet? They didn't want to, didn't think he had anything to say. And, and, and coming to one of God's true prophets, they are clearly sincere. They want to be sure that they do not misunderstand God's word. And God says to Ezekiel in verse 3, look at it. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Taking idols into their hearts means that these have not given up their idolatrous loyalties, even if outwardly they appear devoted to the God of Israel. God sees right through the veneer. He sees right through the religious practices. He sees through it all, and he sees that these commitments, these commitments to idols remain the most serious obstacle to divine favor. Anytime loyalty to God becomes mixed with loyalty to anyone or anything else, that person ceases to be loyal to God. It's all or nothing with the God of Israel. And that's because he is the one true God. He is the creator of all there is. To the extent we pledge our allegiance elsewhere, we collude with evil against the good kingdom of Yahweh. Now, the opposite is not the case. Idolatrous worship is always syncretistic. The other gods care nothing if you worship in the pantheon of the world's deities. When Jesus said that no one can serve two masters, that it is either God or money, it is clear that money stands here as a representation for all other dependencies. If you don't serve God and God alone, you will serve anything and everything else. Only the God of the Bible accepts no substitutes or rivals. We are told in verses 7 and 8, look at it. 
For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God will see to it that all other allegiances are destroyed so that in the end, everyone will know that he is Yahweh, the one true covenant-keeping God. So what is this exclusive demand of the God of the Bible? Who is this God who says, it's me or no one else? Or anyone else? Is this, is this, isn't this the kind of off-putting abomination to our modern sensibilities? An angry, power-hungry God? You can read the Bible that way if you want. But only if you forget that there are plenty of voices in the world demanding your affection and your allegiance. Either Caesar is Lord and the world is run by him and the gods made in his image, or Jesus is Lord and the world is run by him and his people whom he is remaking into his image. This God who demands our allegiance and our affections is a God who wants our hearts because he wants to transform us from a rebellious house into an obedient house bringing the light of his love, the light of his joy into a world of darkness and misery. So tomorrow's Reformation Day. And perhaps it's time again for a new reformation. Some of you know that for me, it is seeing that the Bible is the ancient story of God. Just coming to see this again. I mean, 1,500 years after Jesus It's shocking, isn't it, that we almost forgot the gospel? We almost forgot the good news? Brothers and sisters, if we are not constantly reformed by the sufficiency of God's word, we will forget again. Perhaps it's time that we go all the way back to the beginning and see that the Bible is this ancient story of God who chose in the beginning to make a world. Because this is a God who could be broken, a God who loves so dearly. He would not allow his world plunged into futility by human rebellion to endure, but instead chose Israel to be his agents of restoration. And then chose Israel's own Messiah to be the one through whom his word 
is now being fulfilled in the world today. Let us join with him then through faith and in worship and see that indeed God will perform his work. Let us pray. Father in heaven, oh, that your people, when we gather to worship, would take deep into our hearts the liturgy. It's imperfect, but the liturgy that we regularly uh, use here at Crosstown. We came this morning and we confessed That this week we have rebelled against God. We have gone to all sorts of idols, and any of them will do. We are a rebellious house, and rather than defending ourselves and making excuses, we are encouraged by grace to come and confess. We come and confess this morning that far too often the word of God, the scriptures, the holy scriptures are simply seen as irrelevant to us. Far far too many times we found that they've been misunderstood by us. We've twisted them to justify even the grossest of crimes. Or scripture has been seen as being insufficient for us to the extent that by your grace, your Holy Spirit has shined the light source, the root of our rebellion against you this morning. I pray today you would speak a word of mercy over us as we come to your table. We don't come and receive the body and blood of the Lord because we're worthy, but because He is worthy, and in the worship of Jesus, in the casting down of our idols, God is fulfilling his word. He's shaping us into the image of Christ so that we cling to Jesus and to Jesus alone, can build for his eternal kingdom, can shine light, the light of God's love and joy into a dark and broken world but it's only going to be true if we come to Christ. Cast down every idol. Worship the one true Lord. It's an act of defiance when we recite the Apostles' Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. So we denounce this morning as we come to your table all other so-called gods, we turn to Jesus. Receive us by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.